Good morning once again. I'm excited about this morning. We are starting a new book through our verse by verse, book by book, chapter by chapter, book by book, verse by chapter. Study the Bible. We are in First Peter this morning, so if you if you would turn to the book of First Peter. Uh, we're going to look at the first five verses of chapter 1 this morning. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand, and we'll go and right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Right before Second Peter. That's right. All right. Peter is writing, and we begin in verse 1, and Peter writes, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Get the first part of verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice. The title of my study this morning is, Where there's Christ, there's hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together this morning, knowing, Lord, that you're here among us, Lord. We sense your presence through worship. We know that you're ready to speak to our hearts. So, Lord, we pray that you would just give us ears to hear what you have to say to each one of us this morning. We know you have a message for us personally. You have a message for us as a church, and we just want to be available and open to all that you have for us. Lord, we pray also, if there's anyone that has joined us that has yet to put their faith and trust in you, they're not born again, Lord, would you especially speak to their heart this morning, and they would see their need for you, and they would surrender their lives to you today. Thank you for this time, Lord. We give it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Story read from several years ago that on the campus of Kansas City State University, during football season, the, the campus bookstore would hang big banners in a window to give the, just a message of encouragement to their team for the upcoming game. Some of the banners read things like, Destroy Navy, Wipe Out Washington, Clobber Colorado. But on the week uh, the team was supposed to play the number one ranked Nebraska Cornhuskers, the sign read a little differently. It read, maintain dignity against Nebraska. <laughs> See, the way they saw it, there was no hope in beating this mighty Nebraska team. Listen, in the same way, we are living in a world with a lot of hopelessness. I mean, to hear that San Juan is going to be without power for four to six uh, months due to this hurricane, and then you look at all the devastation that it's caused, and, and, and it's still the devastation that, that is there. You know people are looking around going, this is a hopeless situation. Houston still looks hopeless. We hear of the, the threat from North Korea and, 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 and now Venezuela, and we think, is there any hope? 
It's for that reason that the Apostle Peter reminds all of us that as believers, we are to be a people of hope. I know you've heard me say this before. We don't know what the future holds, but we know who holds the future. And I've used that to encourage us, especially those who may be going through difficult times. But it reminds us that all of our experiences are intimately known to our Heavenly Father. And He has a plan and a purpose for all things that that occur in our lives. So we we may not know that. Now that sounds good until you read the opening verses of 1 Peter. Because Peter tells us that you do know what your future holds. And that Jesus not only holds your future, but He will also hold on to you until you get there. See, Peter's writing to all believers throughout time to say, while there is life, there is hope. Where there is Christ, there is hope. Now I'm excited about going through First and Second Peter because it's all about hope. Hope through trials, hope through persecution, hope through difficult family relationships, hope because the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. Yes, Peter is going to cover what awaits those who don't know Christ and the judgment that will follow. But to those of us who do, God has given us a living hope, and we're going to look at that this morning. Now, if you're taking notes, we're going to see within these first five verses four things. We're going to look at number one, the person, number two, the people, number three, the prayer, and number four, the praise. Number one, we see the person. Well, who is it? Well, it's Peter. Look at verse one. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, when you think of Peter, there's a lot of misconceptions about him. For most people, Peter's just simply the the brunt of bad jokes. All the lame jokes about two guys who died and went to heaven, and who's there? Peter's by the pearly gates and and telling them this or telling them that. I don't know about you, but when I get to heaven, I mean, not that I wouldn't like to meet Peter one day, but I'm going to be pretty disappointed if it's Peter standing there and not my Lord. But what do we know about Peter? Well, we know that Peter, by tradition, was a big man. There was a time after Jesus had risen from the dead that Jesus was on the shore and he's calling out to the apostles there in the boat uh, out in the water who were fishing and said, cast your net on the right side of the boat. And it was Peter who then recognized that it was his Lord and he, he, he jumped into the water and swam all the way to the shore some 200 cubits, the Bible says, or 100 yards. It's the length of a football field. Well, then the Lord turns to him after swimming this hundred yards in and says to Peter in John 21.10, bring some of the fish which you have that you just caught. Then we read this. Then Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to the land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. Now think about this. If if a fish, maybe you got a two-pound fish. Peter dragged some 300 pounds to the shore after swimming 100 yards to the shore. That it says that it's large fish there, so they're probably more than two pounds each. So we picture this big, strong, burly fisherman. But what's funny about Peter is that he uses the word precious some six times in this letter. Big old fisherman saying, that's precious. I mean, you go, wow. But it just shows the impact that Christ had upon his life. Here was a man who failed miserably, yet was fully forgiven, fully restored to the point where he he would pen this letter to bring us encouragement and to bring us hope. I mean, if anyone could teach on the subject of hope, it would be Peter. And think about when he he stepped out onto the water, when Jesus was standing on the water, and and then Jesus bid him to come, and he he actually got out of the boat. Out of all the other disciples, they stayed in the boat, but Peter got out. 
And he started walking on water until he got his eyes off of Jesus and onto the circumstances around him. And, and, and then all of a sudden, bloop, 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 there he goes down. And Jesus reaches out and pulls Peter up, gives him hope. This is the same Peter who boldly declared, I will never deny you, then denied the Lord three times as he took his eyes off of the Lord and onto his circumstances around him, warming himself by the enemy's fire. That same Peter, after weeping bitterly over his failure, seeing the Lord crucified and in his deepest despair, lost all hope, but was then given the message of hope when he was told to tell Peter and the other disciples that Jesus was alive. I mean, Peter had hope again. And Peter then, then Jesus gave Peter one more time hope when, when, when uh, he came to Peter and restored him his hope and commissioned him to feed my sheep. And that's what Peter is doing here. He's feeding his, uh, the Lord's sheep. He's teaching us that. So it's just amazing to see, see the changes taking place in Peter's life from this letter, showing us that there's hope for all of us. Now, we also know that Peter was married which is encouraging for us when he talks about the marriage relationship in chapter 3 and the roles of the husband and the whole roles of the wife because he knows what it's like. He's been there. He could talk about it. So he was married, had a wife, had a mother-in-law who lived with him according to Mark chapter 1. Now his wife is mentioned not only in Mark chapter 1 but also in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. So Peter was married, had a mother-in-law. Now if you're making Peter out to be the first pope, well then you got some interesting facts that you have to deal with. The first pope was married and had a mother-in-law. And if anything I know about mother-in-laws, they will certainly let you know that you're not infallible. <laughs> but notice here that Peter describes himself in verse 1 as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now before Peter was an apostle, he was a disciple. A term disciple appears some 245 times in the Gospels, referring to those 12 early followers of Christ, disciples of Christ. And so do you know what a disciple is? A disciple technically is a student, a pupil, a learner, somebody who has a, a mentor or a teacher. But Jesus' disciples became apostles. I read of a story of a children's Sunday school class that was asked what an epistle is, to which one little boy responded, an epistle is the wife of an apostle. Actually, the Bible uses the term apostle in two different ways. Most frequently, in a very strict sense of the word, a narrow sense of the word, referring to the original twelve who followed Jesus. They were the first generation, hand-picked followers, personally commissioned by Jesus to go out. It was those twelve that had the miraculous powers, the signs and the wonders. Paul the Apostle would say in 2 Corinthians 12, I'm an apostle because I work the works, or the sign of an apostle. It was those apostles, uh, those, uh, the apostles or those associated with apostles who, who wrote the New Testament. That's why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So in a very strict sense of the word, there are no more apostles. But in the broad sense of the term apostles, uh, the, the word apostle means sent out ones. So you begin as a disciple or learner, then you get sent out. So that should be a natural progression in the life of a Christian, of a believer. You get converted, you get discipled, and you get sent out. It's been said, churches die when converts don't become disciples, and when disciples don't become apostles. That's when churches die, when they die spiritually. Three levels are important. Number one, are you converted? Has there been a genuine repentance in your heart, a surrender of your life to Christ? 
Then after that, if there has been, the number two, uh, are, have you become a disciple? One who denies yourself, takes up his cross and follows after Christ. And number three, are you discovering your sphere of influence where you're going out, you're the sent out one to represent Christ and share with those folks the love of Jesus Christ? Three stages, very important in our growth with Christ. That was Peter, the apostle, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's also been called an ignorant fisherman, but no man who had spent three years in the school of Jesus could be called ignorant. The epistle of, of Peter confirms this. I mean, Peter deals with the doctrine of election, foreknowledge, sanctification, obedience, the blood of Christ, the Trinity, the grace of God, salvation, revelation, glory, faith, and hope, all within these first five verses. That's amazing. How does he do that? Through the Spirit of God that worked that change in Peter's life. Same way that God works in our lives. Through the Spirit of God teaching us through the Word of God to walk with our God. Now, we also know that Peter started out being called Simon, which means sifting sand, until God got a hold of his life, and Simon soon became Peter, which means rock. But don't think of rock like Rocky Balboa. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, you know, don't think that kind of Rocky. Think more of um, Rocky and Bullwinkle, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> Flying squirrel, that kind of Rocky. All right, you remember what... what uh, Jesus said to Peter when, 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 you remember when Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? Matthew 16. Peter replied this, he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now hearing that sentence, some have actually believed that Jesus was building his church Upon Peter, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Well, his name means rock, and so he's building the church on Peter. Can I just say this? You know, if he built his church on Peter, we would all be in a lot of trouble. A lot of trouble. The Lord was not building the church upon Peter, the rock, but upon the rock of what Peter just said about Jesus. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I'll build my church on that. So when you think of Peter the Rock, don't think of, of Rocky Balboa, you know, Rocky, you know, just think of, think of pebbles and Flintstones. Maybe that would be a, a small, better rock. But Now one more thing before we move on to point two. This was written somewhere around 64, 65 A.D. And so Peter has a little bit better perspective because the, the day of Pentecost is behind him. He knows what it takes to, to take a stand for Christ. He's been arrested. He's been put in jail. He's been released. He's been threatened. He, he realized the, his crucifixion. The cross is before him. And according to tradition, Peter was crucified on a cross upside down. So Peter is a man who knew what he was talking about because he wrote from personal experience. Uh, it's been said that John is the apostle of love. You read the Gospel of John and you hear all about his love. It's been said that Paul is the, is the apostle of faith. Read Romans and talk about, talks about faith. But Peter is the, is the apostle of hope. Three times in chapter 1 he talks about the hope we have in Christ. So that's a quick overview of Peter. This brings us to point number two, the people. And that is the people he's writing to. Let's read verse 1 again. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, if you have Google Maps and you try to locate those places on, on your maps, you're, you're going to have a tough time. They don't exist anymore. 
These are all ancient designations of the Roman Empire and what it was, was called Asia Minor. Minor. Now it's uh, present-day Turkey. But in all those places, these believers were scattered about, dispersed, and now churches were forming in those areas. So Peter wants to address them in these churches, and he, he calls them pilgrims. Actually, that word pilgrims there is better translated as a word that we don't use very often. It's the word sojourners. It means a resident foreigner. People living in one place as a stranger. Now, I don't know about you, but more and more living in the United States, I'm feeling more like a pilgrim, a resident sojourner. This world is changing rapidly, and we recognize that this world is not our home. We've become strangers in this land as believers, especially as we see our society and the culture and the way it's heading. Years ago, I traveled to Russia on a mission trip, and we did our best not to stand out to fit in. But, you know, they knew right away. You know, they, they saw us. They, we dressed differently. We talked differently. We just stuck out. Well, in the same way, as believers, the Bible says this in 1 John 3, 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Once you become a believer, a Christian, your citizenship changes. You become a citizen of heaven. And everywhere you reside on this earth is foreign to the true desire of your heart, of our heart, which eventually is to be home in heaven with Jesus. You fall in love with Jesus. You want to be with Jesus. And because we as Christians are strangers in this world, we're going to be considered strange in the eyes of those living in this world. We have standards. We have values that are different from those in the world. Now, hopefully we're not strange just because we're doing strange things, but we're strange because the world is so abnormal. Hopefully we're strange because the world looks at us as weird and different because of our stand for righteousness. Because we, the, the world looks at us strange because we speak out against sin. And their response is, oh, come on. You're outdated. You're just, you know, you're a Jesus freak, a holy roller. I remember being called that years ago. You're a holy roller. What does that even mean? Listen, that should not surprise us. I would be more concerned if in your life non-believers don't see you as being a little strange or different. So Peter's writing to the pilgrims of the dispersion. That word dispersion means scattered. It describes that we as believers are dispersed, scattered all over the world. Resident foreigners looking for and waiting for our, our promised land heaven. He goes on. It's written to, in verse 2, the elect according to the foreknowledge of the God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's a mouthful. A non-believer would read that and go, what on earth is that talking about? We as believers go, what is this talking about? But here, let's break it apart. Peter calls the people elect and then describes how they were elected and for what purpose. It's called the, the doctrine of election. It's a doctrine that, that Christians have argued about and divided over for centuries. And there's no end in sight in that disagreement. But I'll tell you what I believe in a moment about that. But first, I need to point out something here about this text here. According to W. Grudem's commentary on 1 Peter, that word translated elect, or maybe chosen in your Bible at the beginning of what is verse 2 here in our English Bible, is actually found in verse 1 of the Greek text. It's there as an adjective modifying the word sojourners. So according to the Greek language, Peter's simply saying this letter is written to the elect sojourners, in other words, the chosen pilgrims. Then Peter says these chosen sojourners, these elect pilgrims, in verse 2, are according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. In other words, this was not about salvation as much as it is about God's direction and sovereignty and God's timetable for these believers at this time in history. 
God had chosen these believers at that specific time to be a part of what was going on at that time. He chose them to live at that time in history where persecution against Christians would be strong and getting stronger. Which is another reason why under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter wrote this letter to give them hope because things were going to get worse. In the same way, we could say that we are elect sojourners according to the foreknowledge of God the Father to live for Christ during this time in which we're living in. God has given us gifts and, and abilities and, and hopes and understanding of His Word to live and make a difference in this world today. And He knows what lies ahead for us in our future and He's preparing for us to be used by Him because our future may get a lot worse. Now because, again, we see these words elect and foreknowledge, let's talk about that for a moment. It's unfortunate, unfortunate that there's been certain teachings about election and about God's foreknowledge that have been taught in ways that the Bible uh, never intended it to be. For example, there are Christians that, that are being told that God's election of individuals is according to the foreknowledge. And that must mean that some people are predestined to be saved while others are predestined to be damned to hell. Not true. Not true. Uh, you know, the Bible never teaches that. God never sends anyone to hell. People send themselves there by rejecting God's free offer of salvation. So what do I believe about divine election? I believe God chose you for salvation from before the foundation of the world. And every human being has a free will to receive or reject his offer of salvation in Jesus Christ. You're chosen and you're free. The Bible simultaneously teaches both. So how do you know if you're chosen or not? Give your life to Jesus Christ. You're chosen. End of story. Now, Peter goes on with another statement that's worthy of looking closer at as well. He says in verse 2, again, you're elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Then he says this, in sanctification of the Spirit. That means it's a, it's a daily, ongoing work that God does through His Holy Spirit in our lives to, to sanctify us, to give us ever-increasing victory over sin. It was John Newton, former slave trader and author of the, the great hymn, Amazing Grace, who said this, I'm not what I might be. I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I wish to be. I'm not what I hope to be. But I thank God I'm not what I once was. And I can say with the great apostle, by the grace of God, I am what I am. There's a sanctifying work that God does in our lives. To those of you that perhaps have a habit of driving a little bit fast, maybe a, a heavy foot, you know, Chuck Swindoll has said, it's usually our right foot that's the last part of us to be sanctified. I can agree with that. Peter here is saying that because of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we have the power, the power to walk in obedience to Christ, to live for Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that you become sinless, but it should definitely mean that you sin less. And here where it says, uh, when we do sin, Peter says, we have the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse us of all sin. In other words, Peter's making this comparison back to the Old Testament. And the practice of people being sprinkled for the purification whenever they came into contact with something that defiled them, they were sprinkled, they were, they were clean. And for today, now we're not literally sprinkled, but we are to understand that Jesus' death upon the cross provides for us a daily cleansing for sin in our lives. As we confess our sins to Him, as First John 1 says, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So, we have, number one, the person Peter... The people, the pilgrims. Number three, the prayer. How's that for a lot of peas? Peter's prayer for these pilgrims was peace and grace. Actually, the other way around. Look at the end of verse 2. Peter says, 
Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Why does he say grace first? Because without the grace of God, you can never experience the peace of God in your life. Without receiving God's grace and forgiveness of your sin, you're not going to have peace in your life. There'll always be turmoil. There'll always be that emptiness in your life. But once you give your life to Jesus Christ, he brings peace. Then number four, we see our fourth point, and that is praise. And Peter gives in verse 3 to 5 the praise to God for all that he's done. Look at verse 3 now. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That word blessed there. It's not the same word that Jesus used in the, on the, when he did a sermon on the mount. There it means, oh, how happy. Here it means something different. It's from the Greek word where we derive our word eulogy from. And it means to praise. So verse 3 would read, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Well, he goes on. Who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I love that. Peter says it's a living hope. That word living could be also translated alive, active, and powerful. Praise be to God, Peter says, for this alive, active, and powerful hope that we have working in our lives right now. I mean, there's one thing that Christians have in abundance, and that's hope. We have hope, and unbelievers, they don't. They're without hope. In fact, Paul tells us that we were that way before we came to Christ in Ephesians 2.12. He says that at that time you were without Christ, having no hope and without God in the world. I've got to tell you something. It's something that the world desperately needs right now is hope. And they ought to be able to see the hope that we have in our daily lives, the way that we live. Three reasons they ought to see the hope in our lives. Number one, because of his abundant mercy, he says here. Peter says, praise be to God, the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, for his abundant mercy. Do you have any idea how much mercy God has shown in our lives? Mercy is not getting what we deserve. We all deserve death. We deserve hell. We deserve eternity separated from God because of our sin. We deserve judgment. But because of His abundant mercy, none of that that we deserve, we don't get. In fact, this mercy in Hebrew means loving kindness. People should be able to see the hope that we have because of God's loving kindness being poured out in our lives, showing us His mercy. Number two, people should be able to see the hope that we have because we've been born again. Peter says it's according to His abundant mercy. He says, He has begotten us again to a living hope. Some modern translations render verse 3, according to His abundant mercy, we have been born again to a living hope. The term born again, we hear a lot nowadays. It's almost become cliché. You know, you have a, a, maybe a baseball player, he's got in a slump in his hitting, and all of a sudden he's, he's, it's, it's skyrocketing, he's doing great. Well, he's been born again, it's a new player. Actually, you know, the, the, the word born again, uh, you know, we hear it from people, oh, you're one of those born againers, aren't you? Or you hear people say, you know, I'm a Christian, I'm just not one of those born againers. Is there any other kind? I, I mean, really. Remember, Jesus said to Nicodemus uh, in John chapter 3, unless a man is born again, he will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be born again? It means to be born from above, to be born a second time, having a spiritual birth, a transformation that occurs on the inside and works its way out. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things passed away, all things become new. So here Peter is, is using that term begotten here, uh, transformed from the inside out. In other words, people around us should see the hope that we have because we've been transformed. We've been changed from the inside out. And finally, number three, they should see the hope that we have because Jesus rose from the dead. Again, look at verse three. 
according to His abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. They should see the hope that we have because we know that Christ is indeed alive. And because we know that Christ is alive, one day He's going to raise us up as well. We have hope because we have the promise of eternal life. You know, when Jesus walked this earth, I mean, He had said such great things to inspire hope in our lives. He said that the Father sent Him to save the lost. He said that uh, He was the water of life, and if you would just drink the water that He gives, you'll never thirst again. Jesus said that He was the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through Him. He said He was the resurrection and the life, that whosoever lived and believed in Him would never die. All these statements inspires hope. But how could those statements inspire hope if Jesus didn't rise from the dead? They couldn't. That's why the resurrection brought a living hope, because our Savior lives. When Jesus rose from the dead, it confirmed those things. Yes, He can redeem lost man. Yes, man can come to the Father. Yes, man can be satisfied and never thirst again. Man can have eternal life. We have hope because Jesus uh, rose from the dead. So too, our bodies are going to resurrect as well. We have hope because we're going to see our loved ones again if they were believers because Jesus rose from the dead. I love 1 Thessalonians 4.13. Paul writes, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. We have that hope. I can't wait. I can't wait to see my mom and dad. I have that hope. I'm going to see my parents in heaven. It's going to be awesome. I mean, amazing. I have that hope. Because why? Because God's word says so. And because Jesus rose from the dead, so too will he. See, this gives us a live, active, powerful hope. That's the message that Peter wants to get to us. He wants us to realize that our point of reference for this living hope is the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. That's what motivates us. We have hope because Jesus said he would rise from the dead, and he did. We have hope because Jesus said he's coming back, and he will. We have hope because Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you can be also. That's why we have a living hope. I read a a story from Union Grove, Wisconsin, where there's a home for mentally challenged kids called the Shepherd's Home. And the founder of the home, Bud Wood, says that one of the major maintenance problems at the home are dirty windows. Well, how do the windows get so dirty? Well, Bud says that you can walk through the corridors of that home almost any time of the day and see kids with their hands, noses, and faces pressed to the windows looking to see if Christ might be coming back right then to take them home and make them whole. I love that. When was the last time you glanced at the sky to see if this might not be the long-awaited moment when we finally see Him face to face? This might be the day. How often do we go through an entire day, sometimes even an entire week, not even thinking that today could be the day that we're face to face with our Savior? Listen, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we would have no hope of Him returning for us. In fact, we would not have Christianity. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians fifteen seventeen. He says, And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep or, or died, is another, another word for that, and Christ have perished. If in this life we have hope in Christ, only hope in Christ, we are are all men the most pitiable. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, why are we of all the men most pitiable? Because we all have hope that that, that this life will get better, that that, that things will be made right, that bills will be no more, that the tears will cease to flow. On the other hand, if Christ is not risen from the dead, then there, there, there is no heaven. It's not real. There's no tomorrow. There's no hope. 
But I love that Paul doesn't leave us there. He says in verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 15, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. So it's because of that we have hope. Hope that causes us to press on even when things get tough, to fight to good, the good fight to finish our race. I read a story that was done years ago by a group of behavioral scientists set up to find data on the emotion of hope and its effect on the psyche. In order to accomplish their mission, they placed a certain number of wharf rats in a tank of water and observed them to see how long they would survive before drowning. Now, our animal activists would cry out today, no way if that happened. So, but this was many years ago, and before any animal cruelty laws were established, so don't try this at home. But, but the average wharf rat lasted only 17 minutes. 17 minutes. Now, even though these animals were very familiar with swimming and tides when, when faced with the prospect that every possible escape from the tank was non-existent, they simply gave up and took their own lives. Well, perplexed, the, the scientists repeated the experiment. However, this time, as it appeared to the point of drowning was near, they, they rescued the rats from the tank. They dried them off, returned them to their cages. Here, they fed them well, let them play for a few days, and then decided to repeat the drowning experiment. To their astonishment, the experiment went much differently as the average survival time for these rats increased from 17 minutes to 36 hours. At the end of the experiment, the behavioral scientists explained that the only explanation for the phenomenon the second time around was that the group of rats had been saved, survived much longer because of hope. In short, because they'd been saved before, they had hope that allowed them to endure. I like that. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we have a living hope and eager, confident expectation of the life to come. That we can, can keep going knowing that God's not going to leave us down here in this rat race. I mean, I mean well, that it's, it's really get our hopes that Peter takes it one step further. Look at verse 4. He says, We're also promised an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. We all know what an inheritance is. Someone dies and, and they, you know, they leave to, to you the property or money or title that you receive upon their death. You know, they promise to you. It's passed on to you, you know, if you're named an heir in, in their will. Well, we're children of God. Jesus came from heaven and earth and died bequeathing heaven to you. See, Peter's not talking about rewards here that might be given when we, when, you know, for our service. He's talking about the promise of, of heaven. And he says here in that word inheritance, it, it, it means it's already there. It's reserved by God for you. It cannot be affected by death or by sin or by the passage of time. It is being reserved. That word reserved means it's kept especially for a particular person. It's Peter's way of saying, God who's begun this work, good work, good work in you, he will complete it. You see, our, our inheritance is incorruptible, which means it cannot be destroyed. Undefiled, which means it cannot be polluted or stained or cheapened in any way and does not fade away, means that when the Lord takes us home, we can be lifted into that new world, that new place where, where there's, there's joy and peace forevermore. That's reserved in heaven for you. Now, it's only reserved if your name is written in the book of life, if your name's on the list, if you repented of your sin and surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, then you're in. Finally, Peter's saying, listen, no matter how bad things may get, you're going to make it. Look at verse 5. He says, with this living hope, we are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. This is one of the strongest uh, statements for your eternal security for the believer. That word kept there is actually a military term, meaning, meaning guarded, kept safe, and carefully watched. 
In other words, God is guarding you, He's keeping you safe, and God is carefully watching over you. You're going to get to heaven where God will complete that work that He's begun in you. See, it's not you holding on to Him, but it's He holding on to you. We sang this morning, when I'm not holding on to you, you are holding on to me. Think of it this way. When my kids were younger and we'd go to cross the street, I would say to them, hold on to Daddy's hand, and they would. Now, let's say as they were, were walking, one of them slipped and lost their balance. They might open their hand. Wouldn't matter one bit, because I still had a hold of their hand. Then they may think that they're holding on to my hand, but the reality of it is, I'm the one holding on to them. See, it really wouldn't matter what danger came their way. I've got a hold of them. They're kept in my power. That's what, Jesus, what Peter's saying here. We live in a world that's increasingly unsafe, and people are sensing that. And there's a lot of anxiety. But Peter says, listen, I got a hold of your hand. I'm keeping you by the power. Jesus is keeping you by the power of God. Same power that resurrected Jesus from the dead. Same power that gave us new life. Same power that protects us as we walk in faith in Christ. We need that protection because, man, we have enemies around us. The world, the flesh, you know, the devil, they're out to get us, to consume us, to discourage us, to depress us, to to fill our hearts with anxiety and hopelessness. But God is greater than our hearts and gives us everything we need to get through this life in victory. Finally, I want to close with this and enter into time of communion. Warren Wearsby puts it this way. This confident hope gives us the encouragement and enablement we need for daily living. It does not put us in a rocking chair where we complacently await the return of Jesus Christ. Instead, it puts us in the marketplace on a battlefield where we keep on going when the burdens are heavy and the battles are hard. Hope is not a sedative. It's a shot of adrenaline, a blood transfusion. Like an anchor, our hope in Christ stabilizes us in the storms of life but unlike an anchor, our hope moves us forward. It does not hold us back. So how does it, God accomplish this in our lives? Through faith. We are kept by the power of God through faith. What this means is regardless of the situation you're here on earth, if you believe God through faith, you have a living hope. You have a future. A hope you can count on. A hope you can cling to every day. An assurance of salvation. That's why Paul begins verse 6 with, And in this you greatly rejoice. Because when you look back at what Peter said, I mean, you can't help but rejoice because of what Jesus has done for us. It's not hard to follow Peter's train of thought here. Everything begins with salvation, our personal relationship to God through Jesus Christ. If we know Christ is our Savior, then we have hope. We have hope, then we can walk in holiness and in harmony. If we have hope, then we can greatly rejoice. Now, if you don't have hope this morning, then it can only mean one of two things. Either you've gotten your eyes off of Jesus and onto your circumstances, and you've allowed the cares of this world to bring anxiety and hopelessness. Or number two, you've not been born again. Now, if you don't have hope this morning, then you need to examine your heart and see where you're at this morning as we enter into the time of communion. So this takes us to the place of, of checking our hearts and see where we're at with the Lord this morning. Because communion is for believers first and foremost. But I say, if you've not given your life to Jesus Christ, I pray that you do so this morning and partake communion with us. But we need to examine our hearts and see, Lord, maybe you've gotten your eyes off of the Lord. Maybe there's some anxiety going on in your hearts. Oh, Lord, I don't know about this and I don't know about that. Let the Lord calm your heart. Confess to Him your anxieties. Confess to Him these things. The Bible says, Be anxious for nothing, but by everything through prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds. Confess that to Him. Lord, I'm anxious. I don't want that in my life anymore. And it'll give us that hope and it'll give us that peace. Let's do that as we enter into this time of communion. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you.
for this time that we can examine our hearts, Lord Jesus. See where we're at, Lord, with you. Maybe we've allowed anxiousness to set in, hopelessness to set in, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that we don't have to live this way any longer. We've been born again into a hope that's alive. Just as Jesus used rose from the dead, you're going to raise up us from the dead as well. Now, Lord, I pray as we look back to the, to the cross and we look to communion, Lord, that we would see what, what you've done for us, Lord, by, by dying on the cross and rising again from the dead. And we would recognize that we could have forgiveness of sin, a cleansing, Lord. We thank you for the work that you've done. We pray, Lord, that we would examine our hearts. Lord, if there's any area in our lives that we need to confess that we would do it, Lord. But also this is a time that we can rejoice in the work that's done. And, and Lord, it causes us to have hope. Hope of heaven. So bless this time we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.